0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm a president from, how are you? Hi, Hi, it's Robert Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 3rd. Today, why Joe Biden is honing in on the Midwest. New trends in food shopping and the changing reality for grocery workers. So what is the challenge that Joe Biden is facing right now when it comes to the Midwest?
1: So it's an area that has two parts of Biden's coalition. Black voters in urban centers like Detroit and Milwaukee and suburban white voters. Those are the ones that he's trying to hold on to and mobilize to vote but there's also this battle over white working class voters, particularly those who went for Trump in 2016 after supporting Obama in prior elections. And just a few thousand votes either way could really make the difference. So Biden's challenge right now is trying to, to figure out the right tone and the right message. My name is Matt Visor, and I'm a national political reporter at The Washington Post.
0: And of course, Biden is trying to strike the right tone in messaging in the Midwest at the exact moment when incidents there have been the epicenter of conversation and protests about racial injustice.
1: The conventions that we saw over the past few weeks were really sort of the opening round of this fight. And we saw each side present their own arguments. And Biden really made this about Trump's mismanagement, largely around the coronavirus. Just judge this president on the facts.
2: Five million Americans infected by COVID-19. More than 170,000 Americans have died. By far the worst performance of
1: any nation on earth. But then Trump the week after really went hard on this message about law and order.
2: The Republican Party condemns the rioting, looting, arson, and violence we have seen in Democrat-run cities all.
1: And he pointed to the looting and the protests that were happening in American cities like Kenosha and Portland.
2: Like Kenosha, Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, and New York, and many others, Democrat-run.
1: And I think that that has really taken over the conversation over these past week or two. And so that's what Biden is trying to respond to now, is is trying to encompass the lawlessness and the protests into his broader argument about Donald Trump. And, And it's really changed the nature of the conversation, at least for now.
0: So how is Joe Biden doing that? What is the message that we're seeing him put out in the Midwest?
1: There's a couple of different strands. One is that he continues to emphasize that most police officers are good. Most
2: cops are are, are good. But the fact is, the bad ones have to be identified and prosecuted and out, period.
1: It's an attempt to both channel, I think, the underlying reasons for the protest to talk about police reform, but he still goes out of his way to talk about most police officers being good. And he's also seeking to make clear that he supports peaceful protests, but not the looting or the violence.
2: Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting, it's lawlessness. Plain and simple.
1: And thirdly, he's sort of emphasizing that all of this is taking place while Donald Trump is president. And so Donald Trump should be blamed for the scenes that Americans are seeing in these cities for creating the culture that is, is leading to those, those kinds of protests.
2: Trump and Pence are running on this, and I find it fascinating. Quote, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. And what's their proof? the violence we're seeing in Donald Trump's America. These are not images of some imagined Joe Biden America in the future. These are images of Donald Trump's America today.
1: But Biden is also really trying to continue to keep focus on COVID. He noted, for example, in this this speech that he gave on Monday.
2: We're now on track to more than 200,000 deaths in this country due to COVID. More than 100,000 seniors have lost their lives to the virus. More cops have died from COVID this year than, than have been killed on patrol.
1: And he's sort of trying to widen the frame, I think, of how Americans should look at safety, not just safety from police and the protests, but safety from their health, from the global pandemic, or safety from having a job and not being able to pay rent, and and so I, I think Biden is is trying to encompass kind of the law and order response into sort of a much wider framework of his indictment of of President Trump.
0: But it still seems like this is a pretty tricky moment for Biden. And you can imagine how easily he could alienate one of the demographics that he is that he is supposed to be able to appeal to, right? That you have Midwestern white people that might have voted for Trump. And part of the reason why Biden was an attractive candidate was because there is a world where those people could also vote for Biden. But then he's also supposed to be incredibly popular among black people who are very loyal to President Obama. And if he veers too far in one direction or another in talking about the protests or talking about lawlessness or not giving enough due credence to systemic racial injustice, you can easily see how one of those demographics could take it the wrong way.
1: And there's always been this tension within the Democratic Party. Should they try in 2020 to go get more black voters to vote in in urban areas like Detroit? Or should they try to win back the white working class voters in areas like Macomb County outside of Detroit? Who, who went for Trump uh, after voting for Obama previously. And, and I think this latest, you know, this past week or two illustrates sort of the, the pull and push of, of where Biden should kind of align. And, and I think we're sort of seeing him trying to do a little bit of both, uh, where he is still trying to speak to anxieties of white suburban voters while not sort of giving up the messaging that they give targeting black voters. They have a new ad out today, the Biden campaign, where he and his running mate, Kamala Harris, who is the first black vice presidential nominee of a major party, it's all about sort of police reform and racial justice.
2: Why in this nation do black Americans wake up knowing that they can lose their life in the course of just living their life?
3: Part of the point of freedom is to be free from brutality, from injustice, from racism. And all of its manifestations.
1: We have to let people know that we. Not and and that ad state state is running in Michigan and North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So that ad is is geared at the, sort of the urban cities and and areas that are predominantly black. Whereas uh, some of his other messaging is is kind of geared at the white working class. So I, I think they're they're trying to walk this very fine line right now, and do it somewhat delicately.
0: And part of walking that fine line seems to be Joe Biden actually going out into the world and to the Midwest. What is the decision making behind this as the moment where we're starting to see Biden returning to travel, even though COVID continues to be a concern?
1: Biden had intended to get back out a little bit on the campaign trail previously, but they'd looked at sort of Labor Day as a marking point. Instead, we're seeing Biden uh, you know, in the week before Labor Day getting out. There's been a lot of concern among Democrats that he needs to do more. He needs to be more visible. Um, his campaign got a lot of calls from Democratic allies right after the Republican convention with deep concerns that the law and order message from President Trump was going to resonate if Biden didn't do more and get out more to respond to it. Democrats are so worried about repeating 2016 at a time when they felt like Hillary Clinton did not do enough, in particularly in the upper Midwest. And she lost very narrowly. Wisconsin was 23,000 votes. Michigan was less than 11,000 votes. And, and Pennsylvania was about 44,000 votes. Very small margins in, in the election. And so they they think that Biden needs to do more. He needs to show that, that this is an area of the country that is vital. And we've always sort of known that this is where the election would be decided. These states that were very narrowly won by President Trump in 2016, the, the warning signs for Democrats is some polling, especially in Wisconsin, indicating a significant drop in support for Black Lives Matter protests. And if that's the case, then there is a concern that the law and order message that Trump is putting front and center could be more effective. So that, I think, is why you're seeing Biden talking about his support for police or his opposition to defunding the police, as as President Trump keeps suggesting that Biden is in favor of. And that, I think, is why Biden is kind of trying to message that and, and cut against some of those, you know, the tightening in the polls. And, and so that's what we're seeing now is Biden today going to Wisconsin. He, he gave a speech earlier in the week in Pittsburgh He's had events almost every day, it, you know, sort of a much quicker clip than than those of us covering him have been used to seeing him out of his house uh, in Wilmington. Um, and, and I think that's all in response to this idea that that he needs to do more. He needs to be more visible. He needs to make more trips. So they're doing it in a, in a way that's a little bit different from how President Trump travels. The events are are still relatively small. Uh, most things will be with people in masks, with people socially distant in smaller rooms. Um, I think the campaign has, they did like, there was a moment after the convention, after his nomination and and his speech, where he went outside and there were fireworks and there were cars. So it was almost like a drive-in movie kind of scene. And I think they liked that. They felt like it was still, people were still safe, they were still distant, they were outside. So they could replicate something like that. But I think they're very cautious and conscious of not wanting to be seen as doing things that are not safe for their supporters and also sort of modeling behavior. And, And again, keeping on the theme of the coronavirus being the utmost thing that they think voters care about, they want to showcase that they are responding to that. And and so if they had a big rally or they had an event with lots of people in close proximity, it would run counter really to their whole campaign message. So I think they're very cautious about, about how they do the campaigning.
0: And it seems like that idea of responsible campaigning ties into this central theme that it it seems like the Biden camp is really trying to go for. The sense that Biden is the adult in the room, that, yes, things are complicated. Yes, things are scary. But he is a person who can keep the peace, who is trustworthy, who won't alienate big swaths of the country. Do you feel like that is an effective strategy for him? I think that
1: it could be. He's packing a lot under sort of mismanagement, Trump's mismanagement of a whole range of things in his mind, whether that's the coronavirus, whether that's racial unrest, whether that's the economy or foreign policy. He's he's kind of trying to have a broad framework that you can fit a lot of things into, into a broader indictment of President Trump. But the leading edge of what they talk about is, is the coronavirus. Um, and so it's almost like you're having the candidates having two different conversations about what the race is about. And the question kind of over the next couple months is is who's, who's louder and who's, you know, more in tune with voters and what they want to hear.
0: — Matt Weiser is a national political reporter for The Post.
4: So we all know that we were shopping differently for groceries in the early part of the pandemic. We were stockpiling and hoarding and we were running out of things. We all know the great toilet paper debacle of of 2020. We focused on contactless shopping, uh, sampling stations went away, you know, uh, salad bars. All those kinds of things that were very obvious shifts. But I was wondering kind of long-term how our grocery shopping habits are changed by the pandemic and then how that in turn impacts what gets made and what gets offered to us and how it gets offered to us. My name is Laura Riley, and I am the business of food reporter for The Washington Post. A lot of the big brands, so from, you know, ConAgra to Kellogg's and Campbell's, they all decided that they were going to focus on their flagship brands. They were going to bring as much of that to the grocery stores as they could at the expense of maybe, you know, ancillary things, uh, spins. So rather than crunch berries and peanut crunch berries and all, you know, all those kinds of cereals, they would focus on their top eight or 10 sellers. In order to expedite the manufacturing. So that was what we saw early on. But it turns out a lot of that winnowing, a lot of those kinds of diminutions of, of you know, range of products, some of that may end up being more long term for a variety of reasons.
0: And what do you think it is about the pandemic and about how people's lives have changed during the pandemic that seems to make people want to go toward the familiar and things that options that they've already incorporated into their life versus not wanting to try new things and and businesses not feeling like they are in a position to sell people new things?
4: Well, if you shop online, let's say all of us are doing kind of omni-channel, multiple forms of shopping now. If you shop online, one of the experts I talked to said, that's more like spearfishing. So you type in Heinz Ketchup and it comes up and you go ding it's in your it's in your basket right if you're in the store it's more like net fishing so you're in the ketchup aisle yeah there's the 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 Heinz ketchup right there but the, oh there's Sir Kensington I've had their mayonnaise I wonder what their ketchup is like or oh Trader Joe's has a truffle ketchup what mm, let's give that a whirl so there's a lot less reading the back of the package comparing you know nutritional content there's much less serendipity in terms of how we're shopping now and frequently with online shopping, people begin with their previous basket. So if last time you bought, you know, milk, eggs, butter, et cetera, et cetera, rather than starting from an empty basket, you're you're starting with your filled basket and taking stuff back out. So that is going to auger for repetition, right? You know, the things that you bought last time, you're going to buy this time. And then also there's the whole idea of that we're being marketed to. You know, when you're in the grocery store, especially if you buy, if you pay with cash, it's an anonymous experience. No one knows precisely what you're buying. No one can say to you, "Hey, you le- you look like the kind of guy who's going to buy mac and cheese. Here's some options." Mm. But online, everything you purchase can be tracked and therefore you can be optimized for, you know, XYZ products so that basically if you buy, you know, Twizzlers and and Jolly Ranchers, you're going to be shown a lot of candy in future. So it really is in a weird way, it's causing kind of a, uh, you know, in the way that we always worried about food deserts and food swamps and in, you know, kind of low-income urban areas, online has the potential to become a food swamp. If you buy food, comfort food, you know, processed food, you are going to be shown those products exclusively. So it, it kind of is, it, it has the potential to cause this real bifurcation in our food system where people who eat healthfully are going to be shown Healthful products, people who eat unhealthfully will be shown more of those. And I wonder if that lack of serendipity in
0: terms of what people see and end up buying online, if that actually is also mirrored in the the in-person shopping experience for people who are still going to grocery stores in person. Because at least to me, it feels like when you go to the grocery store, even if there is a cap on the number of people who are there and everyone is wearing masks, it does feel kind of risky still. And you kind of want to just get in, get out, like cross everything off the list and move as fast as possible. And I I would imagine it doesn't leave that much time for kind of looking at what's on display and considering, hey, maybe I should try this or lingering in a way that would lead to that branching out and what you're going to buy.
4: That's absolutely right. So people are spending more money and less time in the grocery store. They're frequently going in with a, a pretty well fleshed out list. You know, there's also more men uh, doing the shopping now. So, which is interesting. And men shop a little bit differently. They have a tendency, I mean, you see this at the mall, right? All the guys sitting in the chairs, like, when is this going to be over? <laughs> you know, the the browsing, the, you know, I'm obviously I'm overgeneralizing, but they have a tendency to go in, get what they want, get out. And so that is clearly going to minimize the amount of time people have to just meander and follow their bliss. And I think that that will be reflected in what gets offered down the pike. And I think a lot of people feel like what gets people excited in the grocery store is the meat aisle, the seafood, the produce, you know, the fancy chocolate imports, you know, a great bottle of wine, whereas no one gets excited about paper towel and, and you know, dog food and that kind of thing. So a lot of those things people are thinking In future, there'll be the things that you buy regularly and reliably, you'll put that on a subscription kind of thing. So you just don't have to think about it anymore. It just comes to your door once a month. Um, And so I think those kinds of things that may have been supercharged by the pandemic may endure uh, when it's over. And in some ways,
0: I kind of feel like that might be a positive change, right? Things like paper towels and toilet paper and dog food. I mean, to me, those things have always represented invisible labor? You know, that that oftentimes it is a mom or a woman in a household who remembers, okay, we got to buy this thing every month. I can see that the rolls are getting down there. We only have one left. We have to remember to go to the store. And it feels like in some ways, it might be lightening mental loads to just say, for these things that we know that we're going to have to buy every month, we just sign up for a subscription. It shows up to our door on a timeline. And that's the end of, of us having to remember it. But do you think that there is a risk to that or do companies see a risk to this kind of subscription algorithmic mentality being brought to
4: basic groceries? Absolutely. So you're right. It's it's convenient for us. It takes less brain power if you have 20 things that you routinely buy every month just coming to your door. You know, that that's one less thing to think about. But if you are a new toilet paper manufacturer and you're trying to muscle into the market and, you know, chip away at Charmin's, you know, stranglehold, hmm. it, that's much harder to do if everyone's automatically rebuying. So it will, in fact, change the opportunities for new products. I mean, let's say there were some trends that started pre-pandemic. So the kind of better for you. So, OK, you like Cheetos. How about a better for you Cheeto-ish snack food made from pea protein? Or how about paper towels that are made from recycled wood pulp from, you know, kind of sustainability issue type products? Those trends are going to have a hard time ramping up or, or, or actually chipping away at market share if they don't have any way to introduce themselves to customers.
0: So how much of these changes do you think are temporary and will begin to swing back once we get out of this pandemic? And how much of this do you think is just going to be permanent?
4: I think there are categories that have had some kind of constriction uh, during this period. So things that are focused on sustainability and the environment have taken a hit. You know, I think that in January, we were all thinking about climate change and global warming as the biggest threat. And we've kind of temporarily taken our eyes off that ball. And so some of the products that market themselves as sustainable or environmentally, you know, thoughtful, have not sold as well. And I think that that will will bounce back once we kind of refocus our energies in that direction. For instance, bars, you know, kind of granola bars, protein bars, all those kinds of things, things that you tuck into your purse, you know, historically, those have really not sold well in the past six months. And it'll probably be another six months before they kind of creep back out of this, period. But there there are other products that may have a long-term downturn. So for instance, sugary sodas, sugar-sweetened beverages, even artificially sweetened Beverages have have taken a downturn in favor of water. People are drinking a lot more water. But I think that those kinds of things may continue in that vein after the, the pandemic is over. It remains to be seen.
0: Laura Riley reports on the business of food for the post.
3: And now one more thing about grocery workers. So a few months ago at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw grocery workers being hailed as heroes.
1: I'm not a doctor, I'm not a policeman, but I do work in a grocery store and I try to do my part to help the public.
3: A lot of them told me they felt like they were essential for the first times in their lives. They were getting bonuses from their employers. Some companies were taking out billboards and TV commercials to tell them how much they appreciated them.
1: You are on the front lines every single day, working tirelessly to serve our communities and our customers when they need us the most.
3: There was this real sense of pride and purpose in their work, but now, four or five months later, they say all of that is gone. Customers are rude again, those hazard pay bonuses are gone for the most part, and they feel like they're being overworked and underappreciated. Thousands of grocery workers are about to see their paychecks shrink, and some are taking a stand. I'm Abba Butrai, and I'm the retail reporter for The Washington Post. The pandemic has dragged on for longer than I think many Americans thought it would. You know, at the beginning, we thought this was maybe just a few months. We'd all hunker down and we were in it together. Now, the sense I get from a lot of grocery workers is that There's no end in sight, and they feel really trapped in a lot of ways. They want to get a different job. They want to quit, but there are no other options out there. At the same time, we've seen the unemployment rate skyrocket. So employers have less of an incentive to offer perks and, you know, extra bonuses because there are huge lines of people who are desperate to work right now. So the overarching sense is, hey, if you don't like it, you know, leave. We don't really care.
0: Abba Baturai covers retail for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. As the November election gets closer, we want to hear your questions about voting, about mail-in voting, how things will be different because of the pandemic, and what to expect on election night and after. Email us your questions at postreports at and we may use them in upcoming episodes of the show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.